This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Vernon Jordan is a senior managing director of Lazard Frere in New York. Prior to joining Lazar, he was a senior executive partner with the law firm of Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, where he remains as senior counsel. But if the name is familiar, it's because he was at the forefront of the civil rights movement. Jordan received national attention in 1961, when he escorted the first African-American student through a violent mob to attend classes at the University of Georgia. He survived a white supremacist assassination attempt in 1980, and he wrote a best-selling memoir called Vernon Can Read, and a collection of his public speeches with commentary called Make It Plain, Standing Up and Speaking Out. Vernon, you recently wrote about the historical importance of black lawyers for the New Yorker. Right. And you write, I try to stress how important it is that when we doubt or disagree with our leaders, we're not governed by them. We're governed by laws. Is that why you always wanted to become a lawyer, your belief that the law would eventually bring justice? Well, my inspiration to be a lawyer came first from the first black admitted to the Georgia Bar, Austin T. Walden, who went to Fort Valley State College in Georgia and to the University of Michigan Law School, and he finished about 1912 admitted to the Georgia Bar, and he would come to my church on Vesper Sunday where I sang in the choir, and he would talk about segregation. And I can hear him now saying, I'll be glad when you are dead, you rascal, you. (laughs) And so he was my inspiration. I grew up wanting to be like Walden. I want to walk like Walden, talk like Walden, dress like Walden, and hang out my lost shingle on Auburn Avenue just like Walden. That was my first inspiration. Secondly, my mother served the monthly dinner of the Lawyers Club of Atlanta, and I was the waiter, the bartender, starting in 1948. And while I listened to the lawyers and didn't like what they were saying, I liked their manner, their dress, their decorum. And those two things were my inspiration to be a lawyer. Now, in your recent speech to the graduating class at Syracuse University, you said about our current political polarization, we've been here before, so... We know the way forward. Have we ever been this polarized? And what is the way forward? Well, I don't think we've ever been this polarized, nor do I think we have ever had the kind of insensitive 
and competent leadership that we are now experiencing. But even when I lived in Georgia and Lester Maddox was our governor, I had a positive attitude and I have a positive attitude now despite the fact that it's 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 almost impossible to be positive in the in the political climate right now. I I think I think a Republican Senator Corker of Tennessee a Republican who supported the current president got it quite right when he referred to the White House as an adult daycare center. That that didn't come from a Democrat. That didn't come from some liberal group. That came from a member of an established, recognized, appreciated member of, of the Republican Party. It's my judgment that he was not only speaking for himself, but was echoing the feelings of many Republicans, especially in the House and in the Senate. And that leads me to ask you about protest, where You've said you can't get angry, you've got to get smart. What would you say to the football players who are using their platform to protest problems with police and the black community? What yeah. advice would you give them about smart well, I, protest? I would say two things to them. to them. First, I would say when I hear the national anthem, I stand and I put my hand on my heart. And I will continue to do that. But I do that because I appreciate the fact that the America that I'm singing about is the America that says there is a right to protest. And I would defend that right to protest. And that is the beauty of our country. You, you can love it and protest about it simultaneously. Vernon, how would you diffuse the protests by the football players in support of Colin Kaepernick if you were the mediator? Well, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't diffuse it. I would recognize the, the right of players to protest, and I would appreciate the people who want to stand and place their hands on their hearts. What I find fascinating is that the Vice President of the United States spent taxpayers' money to go to a football game where he knew, in fact, the players from San Francisco were not going to stand and salute and put their hands on their hearts. And he should have gone on to where he was to go rather than spend tax money to... That was unnecessary. <laughs> now, the only black GOP senator, Tim Scott, recently met with Trump about race issues. 
Do you think there should be more outreach like this, even though it may seem pointless? I think pointless outreach has some positiveness to it. I'm glad the senator from South Carolina had the meeting, and I have no idea the extent to which it had some positive impact on the president, because I think his concentration is on his 36% or thereabout constituency that he is trying to please in every moment. And I don't think, although he's been president now for nine months, that he understands that when he took the oath, he became the president of all Americans, not just those who voted for him and support him. What uh, leaders impress you now who are the important voices? Uh, Reverend Barber of North Carolina, president of the North Carolina NAACP, and the guy who founded Moral Mondays. Are there others? There are others. They are the traditional leaders at the Urban League, and uh, Mark Moriel has been there for some time, and I think is a very good uh, man. The, the beauty of the Urban League is that we're well over 110 years old, and in that period, we've only had about eight leaders. Uh, I met last week with the new temporary head of the NAACP to share with him my experience as a civil rights leader. And he's a lawyer from Mississippi, and I, I, I wish him well. Uh, there is also a real stirring of black businessmen about their role and their responsibility. There is great appreciation for what the CEO of the New Jersey company, I, I know it, but I can't call it right now, uh, who led the way in corporate executives resigning from positions with, volunteer positions with this administration. The, the problem is that everybody is looking for Martin or Roy or Whitney, and, and that has changed. And the leadership is, is more varied. It's, it's not limited to the civil rights movement. It is in universities. It is in corporate America. It is in law firms. It is in investment banks. And, and that's a good thing because during the real civil rights movement, we were in none of those places. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because corporations are moving forward on issues such as climate change and diversity. Target just announced that it's going to raise a minimum, their minimum wage to $11 an hour with a goal of 15 by 2020. Would you say that today corporate America is more socially responsible than our own elected representatives? Well, corporate America is certainly better than it was when I went on my first corporate board in, in 1972. It has made tremendous progress, uh, but 
it deserves no medals for doing what it should have been doing for a long time ago. Uh, but it is better, and there is greater consciousness of its responsibility for for corporate social responsibility. And it's reflected now in in annual meetings and in and meetings throughout the, the corporate world. It, it, it's not what it ought to be, but it's better than it was. Turning to politics, when did you first meet President Obama, and what was your first impression? I first met President Obama at a luncheon convened by John Bryan, the retired CEO of... Um, of Sarah Lee. He asked me to come to Chicago early to eat lunch with a young senator from the state of Illinois representing Chicago. And that was the first time I had heard of Barack Obama. It's the first time I had actually met him. And I left very impressed, so much so that I hosted a huge fundraiser for him and his uh, election campaign to the United States Senate. What do you think Vernon President Obama is going to do now, and what would you like to see him do? Well, I, I, I have great admiration for his restraint uh, since he left the presidency, for his demeanor, for his staying out of his successes business. Bush 43 set the table for that and has done a good job. And and uh, Obama seems to have taken a page out of out of his book. And I think that I've seen him a couple of times uh, since he came out of the presidency. He uh, he looks like a big load has been. <laughs> Uh, lifted from his shoulders, and uh, he seems to have a positive outlook for his future. He's writing books, he's making speeches, and I'm sure he has some thoughts about his successor's governance, but I'm happy that he's at this point keeping them to himself. Now, during the campaign, Trump Asked black people, what do you have to lose? Meaning that Democrats haven't managed to create economic equality for blacks. Is there a point to be made that Democrats have also failed on this issue? Well, the country has, whether you're Democrats or Republicans, not done what I think its ultimate responsibility is in this area. There was a time when Democrats, uh, certainly in the South where I come from, were huge in their opposition to anything uh, having to do with civil rights. And Republicans, certainly those from the North, were our allies. That has changed. (laughs) And uh, it's difficult now to find... uh, prominent Republicans who are advocates for civil rights and fairness and justice and, and equality. And and so our future maybe rests with 
Democrats. But when it comes to civil rights, I, I, I would like to see bipartisan support, which we've historically had and which we still need. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens in the House-Senate elections in 2018. And then, of course, there is 2020. I hope I'm around to cast my ballot. Well, I wish I knew who your alternatives might be in 2020. Well, it's too early to know. If you remember 1972 when Nixon overwhelmed uh, the Democratic nominee, nobody would have thought in 1972 that in 1976 Jimmy Carter would be president. Now, he had a lot of help from Nixon. But he was from the South. He was not an elected official anymore. And nobody had heard of him, but he was a Democratic nominee and was elected president in 1976. So we never know what's going to happen in politics in America. And uh, I think the Democrats have a good chance to retake the White House. Now, you attended DePauw University, where you were the only black student in your class, and yet you chose this all-white school on purpose. I don't think I would have done that. I wouldn't want to be the only only something. I just, I'd, I'd feel like an outlier. Why did you, what was your motive? My motive was to get the best education available. I could not go to Emory University. I could not go to Georgia Tech. I could not have gone to the University of Georgia because they were all segregated. And uh, I went to DePaul in June, right after graduating from high school, and to a conference for Educational Guidance Clinic, it was called. And the the director of admissions advised me that maybe DePaul might be too much for me and that my ambition to be a lawyer uh, maybe was uh, too much. That probably I ought to think about going to Ball State and being a social science teacher. And I said to the director of admissions, I'll be back. And I went, I was the only black in my class. I learned an awful lot at DePaul University. But by my very presence, I did a lot of teaching. And I was just there um, a year ago to give the inaugural address uh, for our 20th president, where I said if I had to live my life all over again, I would come back to DePaul University. I love the school. It's my alma mater. Vernon, as I was preparing to talk to you today, I couldn't help but be amazed by the number of commencement speeches you've made. What do you like about speaking to college students? This all got started when I was the director of the United Negro College Fund, and I would do four or five commencement addresses uh, every commencement season. And I liked the idea that I could share my thoughts with the graduating class, with their parents, with the faculty uh, of the university. 
And uh, the more I did it, honestly, the more I liked it and the better speeches that I made. And I sort of got a reputation for doing it, and, and, and so I did it. I got to the point that it was difficult to say no. (laughs) 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 And I I like the ceremony, and I like watching these young people as they come across the stage to get their diplomas. It's become a part of me, and I gave the Syracuse commencement on Mother's Day and said to my wife and family that that was my last commencement, that I was going to retire from it. And uh, I think I'm going to have a hard time keeping that promise to myself. I'll bet you will. Longtime civil rights champion Frank Bates just died. And the day before, the man who broke his jaw when he was leading a move to integrate schools in Georgia at age 17 found him to apologize. You have a similar story about a telegram you got in the hospital after you were shot by a white supremacist in 1980. Could you tell me that story? I was in Montgomery, Alabama, at the George Washington Carver High School, where the the leader of the NAACP was being honored, and he had asked me to come and speak. It was in the George Washington Carver High School. Five minutes before the program began, state troopers wheeled George Wallace into the auditorium. And he sat through the program, listened to my speech, which jumped on him about a few things. When it was over, he had the state troopers put his wheelchair up on the stage. And he rolled over and he said, Vernon Jordan, Did you get my telegram? You said so in your speech, but did you really get it? And I said, it was the first telegram I got in Fort Wayne, and I thank you for it. And he said to me, he said, I hear that you play golf and that you play tennis, and you were shot worse than I was shot in 1972. And here I am, confined and stuck in this damn wheelchair. And then he said to me, Vernon Jordan, will you do something for me? I said, what is it, Governor? He said, would you reach down and hug me? Wow. And there was George Wallace, who stood in the schoolhouse door, but before that, who campaigned on the theme of segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, asking me to reach down and hug him. And I did that, and I understood what he was trying to say, and I felt that I should be responsive to him. This this was a bad man as governor when it came to black people. And he, he had had a Damascus Road experience, thanks in part to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Uh, a lot of Southern politicians had a Damascus Road experience 
as a result of the voting rights of 1965, George Wallace included. And so we shook hands and we thanked each other. Uh, He's thanking me for hugging him and I thanked him for sending me the first telegram that I read uh, as I lay very sick in a Fort Wayne hospital. It's a moment in my career that I shall never forget. That's quite a quite a tale. Eric Holder is suing Georgia over racial bias in gerrymandered districts. Uh, former President Obama is working with Holder on this issue. Are you hopeful that this last minority voter suppression tactic might finally come to an end? I'm so so appreciative of the former Attorney General's Eric Holder's leadership and the support that he is getting from our former president, uh, having run the voter education project at the Southern Regional Council for five years after Wiley Branton, the Little Rock lawyer. Uh, it, it so pleases me that uh, this effort is going forward, and I think it's going to have some success. He's a leading figure in the civil rights movement whose portrait hangs in the National Portrait Gallery. A lawyer, business executive, best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and an advisor to presidents. Vernon Jordan, thanks for joining us. By the way, if any of you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt.